It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios, welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. You and you still like me, or you, or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. <laughs> I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth in America wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. We know that the suspect is in custody. He was injured. They have not released any details about who he was, but we did see footage of uh, a white general, a white man. He was wearing shorts, no shoes, no shirt. He seemed to be bleeding down his leg, and he was handcuffed. Uh, CNN, just a few, well, hours, not even an hour, uh, after Ahmad al-Aliwi Alisa from Colorado had shot 10 people and killed them in the grocery store in Boulder, Colorado. And the reason I played that for you was I was just comparing uh, because it's important. You know, I, I don't talk a lot about the uh, these murders and crimes because you get it on television and your other media sources. They obsess on it. They give you all the details. They do, you know, victim witness accounts and all of that. And um, I don't think that I can add to that. But when there is another implication, that's when I like to weigh in on this. And there is certainly another implication on this. Uh, so they were quick to say, of course, that he was a white male. And I'll give you an illustration of this. Uh, as a matter of fact, Twitter started calling, people on Twitter started calling, before they knew what his name was, he was a white Christian terrorist, some wrote. And Newsweek actually collected these tweets and uh, asked Twitter why they didn't, why didn't they consider these tweets kind of a, an, a, a breaking of their policy uh, because they were not true. In fact, let me just read this. Um, Newsweek reached out uh, to the aforementioned tweet authors for comment. One of them was Mina Harris. She's the niece of Vice President Kamala Harris. And her tweet said, uh, the Atlanta shooting was not even a week ago. Violent white men are the greatest terrorist threat to our country. And, of course, there were others. Um, they talked about, you know, white shooters and how dangerous they were and how dangerous white males are. And that's what they rushed to. But then they found out what his name was. Ahmed Alaliwi Alisa, and there's been no mention. By the way, Twitter did not apologize. They kept those tweets up, and they didn't have any problem with it, even though Newsweek confronted them on the inaccuracies. So um, we see a little different treatment here. We know that uh, Ahmad Alaliwi Alisa was very much interested in his Islamic faith. We know on his Facebook page that he talked about his faith, that he complained about the uh, uh, people that were against him because of his religion. The New York Times uh, talked about how he had connections. The FBI knew he had connections to another individual who was under investigation by the agency. Now, who was the other individual? They don't tell us. The FBI and the law enforcement in the immediate announcement of what ha had happened in Colorado told us nothing. They did not tell us his name. You think they didn't know his name when they arrested him? Uh, they Even after they knew, they did not tell his name. They told nothing of his background. Uh, they told nothing of the fact that he, I, I know they might not have known his history in school yet, but we know now uh, that he was convicted of a misdemeanor assault against another student at his high school in 2018. 
and he told authorities that he carried out that attack in response to insults and ethnic taunts. Of course, we know that his family said that he was bullied in school because he was Muslim. He was born in Syria in 1999, but he lived most of his life in the United States. But here's the thing. We know that Islamic teaching uh, is exactly what he's playing out here. What he's talking about is jihad. It's, uh, it, he has a right to kill the infidel. That's what jihad is. And, uh, the, but the family, of course, are saying that he's very antisocial, he's paranoid, he's mentally ill, uh, and obsessed over someone being behind him or looking for him. They don't know what happened to him, how this could have happened. We're shocked. Uh, but on Facebook, we see that um, he was very much involved in his mosque and very much involved in Islamic teaching. But, so here's the thing. Compare that to the shooter last week. <laughs> Can you believe we have to compare these kinds of things? This is Robert Aaron Long, which I didn't even discuss on the air hardly at all. I can't even remember if I mentioned it. But he killed eight people in massage parlors, and I think six of the eight were Asian. Uh, and they claimed this was an ethnic crime. You know, a cl- you know, one more in their list of crimes against uh, Asians, which I think... There may be crimes against Asians. I'm sure there are, but I, for whatever reason, they're trumping this up right now. It's like I told you, they did a story a few days ago about this guy in the hood who attacked an older Asian man on a subway, and they claimed that the guy from the hood said, you blanking, blanking Asian. And I just thought that was humorous. Look, if you've ever been, all of you, black or white, if you know anything about hood culture, I don't think they run around saying Asian. I'm sorry. I just don't think that's the case. And it was just a sign to me that they're trying to create something here, and I'm not sure why. But certainly they're trying to create something else. And that's what I want to talk to you about in this moment. Robert Aaron Long was 21 also. Uh, But would you believe that, uh, by contrast to Ahmad, Immediately, they reported that he was active in his Southern Baptist congregation. And then uh, media outlets began to talk further about what Southern Baptists teach about sexuality, that they only believe in sex between a man and a woman in marriage. But it's not like announced as though it's a good thing. It's like, you see, it's repression. You know, it's, uh, it's at the root of probably the fact that he felt like he had to have this outburst of anger. And, and he, by his own words, said that he did this shooting because he could not control his own lust. He was just enraged over the, the lust that he was experiencing and having trouble controlling. And so he killed, uh, which is, you know, a deranged response. But nevertheless, they were quick to say who he was. They were quick to say that he was Southern Baptist, and they were quick to go into the doctrine on sexuality of Southern Baptists that might explain the shooting. Not the case in terms of the shooter Ahmad Al-Ali, Aliwi Alisa. And so we're being played. We always are. And you just have to know that uh, you can't trust so much of what you're reading. That's going to actually set, a, set us up for what we're going to talk about today. We're going to actually go to college today. Those of you listening with me, because I have a professor friend from Wheaton College joining us today to talk about uh, the the rhetorical devices that is uh, that are being used by the left and maybe by some of us sometimes that deceive and manipulate uh, that make it hard to know what the truth is and so it's going to be a brain teaser I can tell you right now it's going to be one for me too but uh, we're, that's what we're going to talk about in just a second by the way in regard to the um, to the shooter in, in uh, Colorado we know and I said this yesterday that the he was known by the FBI I just said it in the other report. That he had contacts with someone else that the FBI was watching, and that he himself was on the watch list. 
So there's an article by Monica Showalter in The American Thinker, and she points this out. Uh, She said, um, the recent mass shooting out of Colorado from a murder-spewing freak they knew about would suggest nothing. Why they were out there, she's talking about the FBI, busy looking for white supremacists, this admitted refugee from Syria was making plans to kill. And then she points out, Remember, the FBI knew in advance the Pulse nightclub shooter Omar Mateen and were tipped off by the local sheriff. The FBI knew in advance the San Bernardino terrorist Tashfin Malik. The FBI knew in advance the Boston Marathon bombers, the Tsenayev brothers. They were tipped off by the Russians. The FBI knew in advance the Garland, Texas shooters. Uh, the FBI knew in advance of the Parkland High School shooter, Nicholas Cruz. The FBI knew in advance of the Fort Hood shooter, Nadal Hassan. And the FBI knew in advance of Ahmad Alaliwi Alisa from Boulder, Colorado. What are they doing? What are they doing? I'm going to do a long-form uh, interview next week on a nas- with a national security expert on uh, what we've been talking about so often, and that is the FBI's all-out assault, really on people that attended that January 6th rally, this lack of discriminating between people who actually might have gone there to do some harm and people who just happened in the building. Uh, There's talk of, you know, taking away benefits from military people who happened to be there. Uh, It's it's a stunning situation. I'm tempted to go into it now, but I'm going to save it for next week. I've talked about it on and off. It's very uh, uh, concerning. It's very concerning. So... I want to change the subject, though, because yesterday, with all the things that are happening on the border, and they are horrific, you know that. We are on track to receive, illegally, a million more immigrants in this country, besides the bills that were just passed in the House this uh, last Friday with the help of, I think, 20 Republicans, which will legalize several million illegal immigrants in addition to who's coming across the border. So Joe Biden had a big announcement yesterday. I want to have you listen to your commander-in-chief I explain what he's going to do to fight back. This is clip six. And but the vice president's agreed among the multiple other things that have in the meeting, and I appreciate it. Uh, agreed to um, uh, lead our diplomatic effort and work with those nations to accept re- the returnees and enhance migration enforcement at their borders. At their borders, we're already talking with. Mexico about that. She's already done that. We're going to be dealing with a full team now that we have to be able to deal with the problem here at home, but also to deal with it now in terms of in-country. And I can think of nobody who uh, who's better qualified to do this than a former, this is a woman who ran the second largest attorney general's office in America after the U.S., after the United States attorney general in the state of California, and has uh, done a great deal of polling human rights, but also fighting uh, organized crime in the process. So it's not her full responsibility and job, but she's leading the effort, because I think the best thing to do is to put someone who, when he or she speaks, they don't have to wonder about, is that where the president is? When she speaks, she speaks for me, doesn't have to check with me, she knows what she's doing. And I hope we can move this along. But, so, Madam Vice right. President, thank you. I gave you a tough job, and you're, you're smiling. Yes, so <laughs> funny. We all laugh better. about it. Yeah, so President uh, Harris is going to be running the border concerns. Don't worry, you're in good hands. He can't think of anyone better. 
uh, to do this than uh, Kamala Harris. Well, Tom Cotton, the senator from Arkansas, had a few words about that last night. Let's listen. She said that she would uh, decriminalize illegal border crossings during the campaign. She also, recall, compared immigration and custom enforcement officers to the KKK. So, no, this is not going to solve our border crisis. But in the end, it doesn't matter if Kamala Harris or Alejandro Mayorkas and Homeland Security or anyone else is designated by Joe Biden. It's the Biden border crisis because Joe Biden is the one who eliminated the very effective policies and the agreements in place with countries like Mexico and Guatemala that sparked this border crisis. You know, uh, yes, he did. So Joe Biden, the current president, uh, was, quote, in Axios. They are quoting people close to Biden uh, saying that Biden feels powerful now and he's ready to end the Senate filibuster and push through as much transformational legislation as possible while he still has the majority in the House and the Senate. He also loves, according to Axios, the idea that he will be more transformational than former President Barack Obama. He's excited about this. He can do away with the filibuster and they can do everything they want, which includes, you know, adding uh, Puerto Rico and uh, D.C. estates and adding more senators, stacking courts, uh, taking away your guns, uh, re, uh, increasing taxes, back-breaking taxes, coming after conservatives, uh, all the things that they want to do. It is a dr- oh, uh, global warming uh, causing your energy prices to skyrocket because they don't care as long as they have them. This is, you know, he's excited. He loves the idea that he will be more transformational than, f- transformational than former President Barack Obama. So that's a report from Axios and Aren't we proud? This is just such a something to look forward to. Also, I want to add about uh, Joe Biden. He has all of his cabinet picks have been (laughs) confirmed by the Senate with the help of Republicans. With, I mean, one exception, I think. Uh, So Rachel Levin, uh, the uh, transgender man, female, with a long blonde, uh, long blonde hair and a very manly body and a mer- manly face has now been confirmed as Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services. I saw a picture of her recently, I think it was in an airport, wearing a real roughly dress and carrying a purse. Yeah, this is, this is a Joe Biden's pick. She's the one who, in an in- interaction with uh, uh, Rand Paul, was talking about the gender changes that she completely supports in children. It's... It's just uh, the Mad Hatter. It is Alice in Wonderland, and we are living it. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. This is good news, maybe exactly when you need it to. Right now, MediShare is waiving their new member fees. This could save you money on top of all that you'll save each month by becoming a member of MediShare. So many people are looking for a healthcare solution right now, seeing the cost of COBRA plans, for instance, and MediShare is the affordable alternative to health insurance. The typical family saves $500 a month. You might save even more. MediShare is a Christian community that shares each other's healthcare costs, and because of the current economic situation, they're making it easier than ever. Apply by March 31st. You can save an additional $170 on your first month. I'll give you the number here in a second. And if you call, you can get a price within two minutes. Just tell them the promo code SHARE to receive your additional savings. Maybe now is the time to make the switch like more than 400,000 people already have and start saving. Here it is. Call 833-44-BIBLE. That's 833-44-BIBLE. 833-44-BIBLE. Hi, this is Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, and I want to send a big thank you for standing for life to you. 
Because of listeners like you in 2020, Preborn sponsored over 45,000 free ultrasound sessions to women in need, saved over 31,000 babies, and prayed with over 6,500 women to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord. The battle rages on in 2021 at an even greater level, and our goal is to give Planned Parenthood the biggest competition ever. I'm going to keep my baby, and I'm going to be a great mom. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country, and their mission is to help save babies' lives and souls through love and compassion and the message of Jesus Christ. To find out more, go to preborn.com. Again, that's preborn.com, or simply dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 and say the keyword baby. Your love can save a life. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Starnes with news and commentary next. Virginia teachers, take the lead in education with up to 64% off your graduate degree at Liberty University. This year has forced you to innovate, adapt, overcome, and you've not only risen to the challenge, you've crushed it. Now help education emerge from this crisis stronger than ever with your MAT or MED degree. Our transfer-friendly degree programs are 100% online and start as low as $282 per credit hour. It's our thanks for all you do for our future. To learn more, text TEACHER to 49595. That's TEACHER to 49595. The Biden administration plans to spend more than $86 million to house illegal alien families in hotels. Immigration and Customs Enforcement will oversee the project, providing medical care, food service, social workers, and China virus testing all paid for with your tax dollars. The feds say hotel rooms are a safer option than Border Patrol stations. Not only is the border open, ICE will leave the light on for you. By the way, let's do the math on President Biden's vacation at the border. If you take 182 days, multiply by 1,200 illegal alien families, and divide that number by 86 million, that comes out to $395 per night, give or take a few hundred thousand bucks. What are they doing, housing everybody at the Ritz-Carlton? One final point here. While illegal alien families enjoy turndown service courtesy of American taxpayers, National Guard troops in our nation's capital had to sleep on concrete floors in a parking garage. I'm Todd Stearns. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. I told my daughters, granddaughters from the time, they were old enough to understand what I was saying. And I mean it. There's not a single thing a man can do that a woman can't do as well or better. Not a single thing. I was among the first senators ever to appoint a woman to the Naval Academy. I was just able to, as President of the United States, appoint two women as four-star generals. That was uh, your president saying that there is nothing that a man can do that a woman can't do or do better. Hmm. Well, speaking of things that are not true, uh, we're going to talk today about what is true and what isn't and why we are so confused in the conversations, uh, in the media interactions that we're having from our politicians. Uh, Some say one thing and others say another thing. And how in the world are we supposed to know what's true? This is something I hear from you so often. Uh, Sandy, I don't, where can we go? How can we know what's true? And a lot of you say to me very kindly that one of the reasons you listen listen to me is that you think... This is a place that you can get the truth, and I certainly, that's what I strive for. But how do I know it? How can I find it? How in the world, in the midst of the 
uh, the ploys and the deceptive rhetoric, like Joe Biden's comment just there, that uh, there's nothing that a man can do that a woman can't do. Really? Okay, well, I think you could drive a truck through that one, but there are some that are a lot more subtle. And I have asked a professor friend of mine to join us this morning because he actually teaches about this. His name is Jerry Root. Uh, By the way, he is the director of the Institute for Strategic Evangelism at the Wheaton College uh, Billy Graham Center. He also teaches Christian formation and ministry department and in the Evangelism and Leadership Master's program. Uh, He is a C.S. Lewis scholar. He's written C.S. Lewis and the Problem of Evil, uh, an investigation of a pervasive theme. He's the co-editor of a book called The Quotable C.S. Lewis, and I could go on and on and on. He has uh, lectured at 78 different universities in 18 different countries on C.S. Lewis, and there you go. But besides that, the most important thing on his resume is he's a very dear friend of mine. Jerry, thanks for joining me this morning. Sandy, it's great to be with you. Thanks yeah, for having I, me. Yeah, I'm so glad. You know, uh, Jerry, we are awash with lies, and I know that you've kind of taken this on in your classroom instruction. And uh, this is a very complex issue. You're talking to just regular folks. They're not college students, at least. Well, some of them are, (laughs) you know. But uh, it's going to be a challenge to make this clear. But I know if anyone can do it, you can. I think I kind of liked it. Go ahead. Go ahead. I I try to explain to my students how to craft a good argument in their papers or how to avoid informal fallacies that deceive. And if I see these on their papers, I grade them down. But we often, in the public rhetoric, can't give grades to the people who have failed us with their rhetoric. Yes, and, and of course, we, I've already, already explained. I don't have to explain. You know, I don't have to explain that. We are drowning in a sea of lies. I don't even have to give illustrations. I did play, pay the one from Joe Biden. But let's go to this whole thing you lay out, if we could, Jerry. And we, we won't be able to talk about all of them, but what you call informal fallacies. Yes, that's a violation of logic. It sounds good. Um, you, you mentioned lies. I'm not convinced everybody lies. I think sometimes people are just foolish, and they don't even know they're telling a lie. Augustine wrote an essay on lying, and he says, for it to be a lie, it has to be a knowing deception. You never got a test paper back from a professor, and next to the margin of your wrong answers, the professor wrote, you liar. You liar, you liar. It was wrong, it was false, (laughs) but you didn't know it. So we've got some people who foolishly say these things and don't even, they're not even aware because they're so invasive in our culture, we've been swept away by these things. But the informal fallacies are usually some sort of violation of logic. They sound good, but they're they're false to the core. So, uh, Jerry, uh, just a quick answer to this one, if you can. I, I don't know anybody that studied logic except you. Who studies logic? Well, I mean, people hopefully t- people get it in their basic philosophy class in their first year of college. They should be getting some of these things. But anybody can pick up a book on logic and read about these things. Okay. Well, let's talk about some of these. Now, they have uh, sometimes they have Latin names, but people will recognize them in, in a heartbeat. In fact, let's... Let's just jump in here. You talk about the fallacy of the sweeping generalization, dicto simpliciter. <laughs> There's the, the Latin name. So yeah. uh, what is it, this? It, it generally leaves out information that counts against the claim. I don't speak French. You don't speak French. Nobody at this college speaks French. It's, 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 it's a sweeping generalization, and I've left out the fact that there might be a French department at the college. And so consequently, it... it that sways a person, but it doesn't give the information to be convincing. So in the swaying of the person, it misleads. 
Yeah, you know, I have to say, I'm sure I'm guilty of that at times because it's easy to do, even in interactions with friends or family or husbands and wives. You know, it's easy, well, to, easy to make a sweeping generalization to make your point. Well, we get it, too, when people say evangelicals voted for Trump, therefore evangelicals are bad, or African-Americans voted for Biden, therefore African-Americans are bad. Neither of those statements are true. Evangelicals voted across the board. African-Americans voted across the board. So, so this sweeping generalization doesn't really give me data that's valid. It just tries to manipulate. All right, so the motto is that we need to be very careful that what we say is actually accurate. Even if, if this is where you say it's not annoying lie, uh, but it's we're not accurate, we're not careful uh, in our thinking. So and then you one, and once it's ahead. pointed out, if we persist with the argument, now now it becomes a lie because we we're doing it knowingly. You know what's uh, good, Jerry, and what we're missing. I know that you know because I did so much television. There's no time for a decent, honest back and forth. You know that's where we learn the truth, the give and take. Yes, but there's this. Yes, but how about that? And yet, and, and I think that's what we're missing in our culture. We don't have the back and forths uh, of honest pe- people that want to be honest about the situation. Well, there's, there's also one of the informal fallacies is to beg the question. It assumes the outcome without proving the point. And if I begin with begging the question and you disagree with me, I'm, I'm assuming the, the point's already been made. So consequently, then, if you don't hold to the point, I then belittle you as being foolish or something like that, and I haven't engaged in this dialogue that you've talked about. And that often happens, the begging of the question, the assuming the outcome without proving the point. Okay. See, you know, we hear that all the time, that phrase, begging the question, but I actually never did know what that was. I'm, in, I'm telling people, I'm at school with you. I'm, list, I'm a student this morning, too. Explain it again, Jerry, begging the question. To to beg the question assumes the outcome before you've made the point. It's one of the things that I think underlies um, groupthink. We all have this conclusion and this assumption, and yet we don't realize that the assumption has never been adequately made or proven. Um, There's another one, too, that's interesting to me, Sandy. It's called the hasty generalization where there's too few instances to properly support the generalization, and sometimes it could set me up as an authority, and yet I haven't established that I, am, uh, that I have that authority. For example, if I said Prague is the most beautiful city in the world, I can't say that legitimately because I haven't been to every city in the world. I could say Prague is the most beautiful city I've seen. That has merit only if I've seen a lot of beautiful cities. But if I say, well, the only other city I've seen was Barstow, California, <laughs> I, I appreciate people who live in Barstow, but it's not a beautiful place, and my judgment is watered down by the fact that I, haven't, I don't have much to compare it with. But if I say Prague is the most beautiful city I've seen, I better be prepared to have a convincing definition of beauty and show how it might be applied to a city generally and how it might be applied to Prague most exceptionally. If I can't do that, I'm just reduced to saying I like Prague. Well, if people are engaging and saying, I like this or I like that, that doesn't prove any point. That just tells what my predilections are all about. You know, um, because, I've had to, because I've done talk radio for so many years, and I've had to discipline myself. I've come a long way, believe it or not, uh, from my early years. of I had lots of passion about things, and I'm sure I was guilty of a lot of these things, and still am, I'm sure. But it takes a lot of discipline. And, Jerry, it makes me think of that admonition in Scripture about uh, he who controls the tongue can control everything. 
you know, control yeah. everything about his body. I mean, it, it really is, is a discipline of the tongue. Uh, you're not yeah. now, again, we're not talking about things that are, some people use these intentionally, but some of these are unintentional, as you said before. Well, and also it's a discipline of the emotion. So I give out these lists to my students and say, I want you for a month to watch where you hear this, whether it be in a lecture, whether it be on the evening of television news, right or left, makes no difference, or whether it be in the classroom. And sometimes they'll come up to me and say, Prof, you, <laughs> you use this informal fallacy today. So all of us could get caught up in it, but usually we get caught up in it in the flow of things. I don't, like I said, I don't think we always do it intentionally. But if you see this repeated in a culture, we are responsible, I think, for how complicit we may be because we just let these things slide and we're not alert to them. So we can grow in the habit of being alert, and I think that's important. Well, we're going to talk about truth in just a little bit, but I, you know, as you know, Bruce was a polygrapher with the FBI, and there are tells when people lie. And so I guess I'm viewing these things, if we understood them well, Jerry, as tells when someone is not, either their information is not accurate or they are lying, these are the tells. It's really interesting. In fact, here's one that everybody's going to recognize this one. Everybody's going to recognize it's abusive ad hominem. Talk about that. Well, the abusive ad hominem is I attack the man rather than deal with the data that the person has spoken. So you can call a person a name, call him a racist, call him a Marxist, call him a narcissist, call him an evangelical. Rather than define the objectionable argument and stick to the data, the arguments are made, uh, are, are, they, they seek to persuade by attacking the person. And yet they haven't made the claim or case. So if I hear somebody call another person a narcissist, I say, oh, so you have a degree in psychology and you had that person on your couch and you analyzed them. And after your analysis, you were able to classify them as a narcissist. And now you're telling us this and you violated your own privacy practices. How, how do you get away with calling a person a narcissist? If I say, this person made a statement and it seemed a little self-referential to me uh, for these reasons, then now I've got a case, but not a case to call them a narcissist. That's to make a sweeping generalization about this person's character or the flaws of his character, and I have not proved the point. If I say they're a racist because I don't like a decision they made on a particular matter, that doesn't prove that they're invaded with racist tendencies. They may have made a mistake. Or... Because these titles that we give people change constantly. I, I may not know that I'm offending somebody because I didn't know they wanted to be classified a particular way today when yesterday they were classified differently. Oh, this happens all the time, Jerry. I, I mean, I think that we see this every night. If you were to watch television tonight, all of you listening, you would see uh, someone who wants to discredit uh, the ideological opponent by calling them a racist, a Marxist, or a narcissist, or whatever the, the, the happy term is at that moment, or it could be a Christian nationalist, <laughs> could be a lot of different things. You know, I was a, a, a debating with the president of the National Organization for Women years ago when I was president of Concerned Women for America, and we were ta probably talking about abortion, I don't know, I'm guessing, uh, and uh, she suddenly, out of nowhere, started talking about the fact that I was divorced, which, of course, had nothing to do with <laughs> You know, it had nothing to do with the, the subject matter, but she was trying to uh, discredit me as a Christian. 
And it was, it did jar me. It did throw me for a minute because it was like, wait, how in the world am I going to respond to that? You know, I can't, I, I can't, you know, I go into the details of my marriage. I mean, it's, so it really is a very effective device in some cases. Well, C.S. Lewis said, if I go to the doctor and he tells me not to drink too much, and I know that he's an alcoholic, the advice is still good whether he practices it or not. So we're, we're, we're talking about truth, not the, necessarily the character of the person. Character is important. We want our lives to be in line with the truth. We want to adjust the scoliosis of our soul to the plumb line of reality. But the, also the thing that you're talking about is in informal fallacies, a red herring. So a red herring's a fish, and the fish moves away from the argument at hand. So you, you see people asking a politician a question, and rather than dealing with that question, they start talking about something else over here. And consequently, the fish has swung, swum away. The argument has moved away from the thing on the table. So if this woman is trying to cause a distraction to you and not dealing with the content of what you've said, that is an informal fallacy. Yes. Well, there's so many illustrations. I, I, now, Pete, we hear also this phrase, uh, Jerry, this is what I'd like to do. Let me tell you just in terms of format. We only have like a minute and a half here. And I would like to come back and maybe talk about a few more fallacies. And then, but then I want to talk about truth, how to define truth and how to know what truth is. Okay, can we do that? I would be, I would be excited to do that. Oh, okay. Well, first of all, let me ask you this if, as much as you can respond in a minute and a half. Straw man arguments. That's a, a phrase we are familiar with, but what, what are they? Well, a straw man argument is when I represent the other person in a, in a poor caricature of their position. And so consequently, it's easy for me to dismantle what I represented them as having said, rather than really deal with the complexity of what they believe. And consequently, I can project, and, and in that projection, I make assertions that are false themselves. And we, we, don't, get, we, don't, get, um, we don't get neutral, but we can become impartial. And to become impartial, I have to give the other person veto power of my impression of their position. And then I can begin talking about realities rather than straw men. Yes, so I wish I, I wish I had had the time to think of it. There's an illustration for all of these, but um, basically you're saying uh, you're in an argument, or I always tell, think of a television debate, and they impute to you uh, views that you don't have, and then they base their refutation of your opinion on their misunderstanding or mischaracterization of your position, and that does happen all the time. Uh, my yep. guest is Dr. Jerry Root from Wheaton College. He's the director, again, of the Institute for Strategic Evangelism at Wheaton College Billy Graham Center and a C.S. Lewis scholar and, and the friend of Sandy Rios. So that's the, mo- <laughs> that's the most important thing. He is an absolute national treasure, and he'll be back in a second because we're going to talk about what truth is and how you can know what it is. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Hello, my name is Todd Friel. I am the host of Wretched Radio, heard right here on American Family Radio from 10 p.m. till midnight Central Standard Time. Not to brag, but Wretched Radio from 10 p.m. till midnight is the single best Christian radio program on American Family Radio at that time period. That's right. We hope that you'll join us Saturday night. See for yourself from 10 p.m. till midnight for Wretched Radio on American Family Radio. 
Hi, this is Dan Celia from Financial Issues. We as God's people need to be good stewards of all that he has given us. That is so important, and that's what drives me each day as I break down the latest financial numbers and talk to listeners across the country about their use of the money that God has entrusted to them. Join me each morning from 8 to 10 Central and Saturday mornings at 10 o'clock Central Time for Financial Issues right here on American Family Radio. A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. Thanks to State Senator Angela Hill, who authored and fought tirelessly for the law, Mississippi has become the first state in the U.S. in 2021 to enact a law that prohibits males who identify themselves as females from competing against girls in public school sports in the state. The Mississippi Fairness Act was passed by the state legislature and signed into law by the state's governor, and it will apply to public K-12 schools, as well as all colleges and universities. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner with Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. Brian Fisher here with today's Life and Liberty Minute. Reparations represent compensation paid to descendants of former slaves. While the idea has some superficial appeal, it is profoundly unbiblical. That's because in a Christian nation, we do not punish sons for the sins of their fathers. In a culture governed by Judeo-Christian values, each man is to be held accountable for his own sin, but not for the sins of others. As Deuteronomy 24.16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Ezekiel 18.20 says the same thing. A son will not bear the iniquity of his father, and a father will not bear the iniquity of his son. The only debt we owe to each other is the obligation to love each other, and that's a debt we will always owe. Catch Brian Fisher on Focal Point, weekday afternoons at 105 Central on American Family Radio. This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. If, as Ronald Reagan contended, personnel is policy, the Biden-Harris administration's wrecking operation is being relentlessly locked into place by the people being appointed and confirmed to top government posts. For example, virtually every senior official involved with U.S.-China relations has compromising dealings or ties to the Chinese Communist Party. That's a problem for U.S. policy. It's also emboldening our mortal enemy, the CCP, as Beijing's representatives made contemptuously clear in recent meetings with top Biden appointees in Alaska. The Senate will shortly consider the latest addition to this dubious roster, Colin Call, the nominee for the Pentagon's top policy job. Call has long-standing ties to Peking University, which American intelligence regards as a prime locus of CCP recruitment of foreign nationals. Senators must stop enabling the Biden team's dangerous policies by rejecting, not confirming, such problematic personnel. This is Frank Afney. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Sandy Rios back with you. Well, last Wednesday, a Republican attorney general, uh, his name is Todd Rakita, was, uh, excuse me, testifying before the Senate. 
It was a hearing on the 2020 presidential election, and he said something like this. He was one of, by the way, the 17 Republican attorneys general that sought to overturn that 2020 election result. And so uh, he was one of the ones testifying, and he said, we don't hear enough about public confidence. Um, He said, um, Americans saw mountains of mail-in ballots being processed in cavernous voting centers. Uh, He cited last-minute changes to election laws and implied that the the defeat of over 60 lawsuits was not on the merits, but because the legal challenges had overwhelmed the system. Well, Senator John Ossoff, the newly, the leftist, a senator just elected out of Georgia, jumped in, and this is what he said. Here it is. I take exception to the comments that you just made, Mr. Rokita, that public concern regarding the integrity of the recent election is born of anything but a deliberate and sustained misinformation campaign led by a vain former president unwilling to accept his own defeat, who rather than observing the sacred tradition and necessary process of a peaceful transition of power for a losing candidate for the presidency undertook a scorched earth effort to undermine public confidence in the integrity of our elections that was so dramatic and so destructive that it culminated in a violent assault on the United States Capitol. Former President Trump's own senior officials, cabinet officials, directly rebutted his meritless claims that there was any level of voter fraud that might have had a substantive impact on the outcome of the election. And I find it disturbing that a chief law enforcement officer from one of our great states would indulge in that kind of misinformation and spread those kinds of conspiracies when public confidence in the integrity of our elections is absolutely essential to sustaining our democracy. I want to turn for a moment now to the legislation before us. a minute to respond to that? No, you may not. I'd like to turn now for a moment to Ms. Muller. Senator Ossoff, just give him 30 seconds to respond. Go ahead, sir. Yes, Senator. I mean, that's true. I mean, if we're trying to have a constructive debate, you're not adding to it by cutting people off after invoking their name. I would say that you're entitled to your opinion, as misinformed as it may be. But I share the opinion of millions of Americans. The other difference between my opinion and yours is mine comes with the ability to file lawsuits. Okay, so that's how it went down. It was the Indiana Attorney General Todd Rakita and uh, the newly minted uh, Senator from Georgia, John Ossoff. Uh, And so we're talking about truth and rhetorical devices. I thought that might be a good example to let maybe Jerry opine on what just took place there. Jerry Root, Professor Jerry Root from Wheaton College is our guest, and we're talking about uh, how how to discern what the truth is and rhetorical deceptions. Uh, Jerry, I don't know if you could hear that well enough to respond, but what what did we just hear from your perspective? Well, we heard people with two opposing points of view trying to make their case, and there was uh, an unwillingness to let the other side respond. That's tragic. But the, the, the deal is, either case, we don't know as listeners if one has the evidence or the other has the evidence. And to establish a truth, truth is not reality Truth is what I think about reality when I think accurately about it. So for there to be an objective truth, um, we understand there is a world out there, and there is my capacity to know something about that world. And when my knowledge of that world corresponds to the reality, I can know truth. 
If, if on the other hand, I'm just being very uh, self-referential, I'm like a spider spinning its web from itself. And this is, this is not truth. Truth has is, is generally been understood to be validated by the reality. So if I, if I disagree, if I say there was voter fraud, I'd better be able to prove it. If I say there wasn't voter fraud, I'd better be able to prove it. If I can't prove the reality, then I'm espousing something without, without uh, reference. And the, the classical definition of truth is that a statement is true when it says what is is or what is not is not. And a statement is false when it says what is is not or what is not is. And this, this definition, you could go back to Plato, Aristotle, you could go back to Thomas Aquinas, Augustine, you could go to John Locke. Throughout history, this one stood the test of time. There have been anomalies of definition of truth, things like relativism and so on, that, that they don't last because there's no reality to support the claim. And, and so I need to make sure I can get to the reality. If I can't get to the reality, but there's probability, then I have to state it as an opinion, not truth. An opinion's based on probability rather than certainty. It's subject to doubt, and reasonable people can differ in matters of opinion. If I don't have probability, then it's just prejudice. What I hold is a prejudice. So um, in that case... Would you think that, uh, I don't know if this falls in any category, but the unwillingness of, well, now we'll get particulars here, Senator Ossoff to let uh, the Attorney General speak is a sign to me that he does not have, that he does not have the facts, that he's doing, he's one of, doing one of, those article, uh, one of those arguments that you talk, I'm not sure which one, but he's not yeah, speaking. Yeah, he's trying to the suppress tr- the evidence. It's an informal fallacy, suppress the evidence. So I make a presentation and suppress anything that counts against it. So I'm not really in a pursuit of truth. I'm a pursuit of making my point. Again, it's self-referential, and usually that which is self-referential begins to become utilitarian or even tyrannical. So he suppressed evidence. That's not good. I want to hear what the guy has to say. In fact, he's got evidence. But if he doesn't have evidence that there was fraud, then also there's a problem on the other side. Well, that reminds me of an interaction between Senator Rand Paul and uh, uh, Dr. Fauci. A couple of days ago, I played a lengthy clip, uh, uh, and basically, Jerry, uh, Dr. Rand Paul is a doctor also, as you know, and he was quizzing Dr. Fauci on, well, what is the evidence? What studies do you have to show that a mask is necessary for people who've had the disease or had COVID or who have had the vaccination? There are no studies. And then uh, Dr. Fauci would blah, 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 blah. But, and then Rand Paul kept saying, but what are the studies? Tell me, where, what are the studies, the American studies that show? Uh, and uh, that was the exact opposite, where he was actually asking for proof and Fauci could not give it. Well, the, the interesting thing is sometimes you'll see a sweeping generalization in that area. We've got people who are constantly now saying, follow the science, follow the science, <laughs> as if to say follow the science gives me scientific veracity. The reality is... Science is always changing because new data is constantly coming in. There was a book, a great book people might want to read, by Thomas Kuhn called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And he says the paradigms of science are always having to change by virtue of new data. So the person says, follow the science as if the science is giving me, with authority, an absolute fact that, in fact, is not going to change. We've got some problems. Even if I know the truth, Sandy, and I am able to validate the reality, support my position by validating it with reality, 
that statement that I hold may be a sure word, but I have to hold it with the open hand of humility because every truth I know can still be plumbed more deeply. It can be applied wider. It can even be applied to questions I haven't even begun to ask. So I hold it with humility because change will always be necessary, even in the realm of truth I know. It will have to be changed because I find out what I thought was true was not, and I cut down the tree, start all over. Or it will have to change like a tree changes when it adds rings. It becomes more robust. I, I have a change of degree, and I understand it more deeply. Mm-hmm. So this idea of follow the science as if that's a settled fact, we're being deceived by that particular statement. There may be scientific evidence that's sure words, but people who know science are, are, are more humble in the way they approach it. They're not trying to coerce by virtue of what they know. I Just a personal word again. I, this is a journey that I've been on since I've been doing talk radio for all these years, uh, learning to hold my opinions loosely and being willing to read things and take in information that, that challenges my previous view. And it does take humility, Jerry, and it, it's the only way to get to the truth, and I'm really committed to that. I want to ask you, when people say follow the science, and there's so many other slogans, if, if I could, if I were quicker on the draw, I could think of a million slogans like that. Is, there, is that a device? I mean, how would you describe, I know it is a device, but how would you describe that, where people adapt a slogan, and it takes on a power of its, or people, uh, Bush died, lied, people died, or, you know, whatever, they'll come up with slogans who, are, they're really not even rational, or they're certainly not always true, and yet they're so well, persuasive. Well, the, the thing is, science can say things that are helpful and things that are well-studied and supported. But if I then take the phrase, follow the science, as if science is always right, or science uh, never makes errors, or science never has to be corrected and more, made more robust by virtue of incoming data, then I have abuse with that phrase. So I'm not trying to in any way say that science can't give us useful information. I think it can. But, but, I mean, we, we've had major paradigm shifts in different scientific theories throughout history. And, and so science is good. I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful we have a, a, a sciences uh, department or, or division here at the college. I'm grateful for the way engineers take what the sciences have discovered and apply it to things. But there was a guy named John Polkinghorne. He taught at Cambridge University. He was a president of a Cambridge University college and also had a degree in theology as well as physics. And he pastored a church at the same time at Cambridge University in England. He just retired a few years ago. And, and Polkinghorne was once asked, uh, he said, uh, if you ask the scientists, why is the kettle boiling? The scientists would say, well, heat from the burners agitating the molecules and causing it to boil at 100 degrees centigrade. You could test that over and over again. It would give you the same result. But you could also say the kettle's boiling because I wanted a cup of tea, and would you like one too? And by mere scientific investigation, you couldn't give the second answer. So if I say follow the science, as if that concludes all discussion, it only gives me the, the measurable and quantifiable. There may be other factors also at play, and I want the most robust understanding I can. That's why, hopefully, a liberal arts education will give you what the sciences say, what the social sciences say, what the fine arts say, what the humanities, philosophy, history, and, and literature have to say. So I can come up with a more informed and robust grasp of these things. That becomes very important. So I don't discount sciences. I just don't let sciences discount everybody else. Yes, and I think uh, certainly one of the reasons that that phrase has so much power, Jerry, I think is because science has become the arbiter of truth for so many in a, uh, an increasingly 
humanistic, godless age where we feel we can do anything. And science has replaced God in many ways in people's minds. And so that's why that thing ha- that has so much power. Now, this is a deep question, and uh, this, we only have a few minutes left, but my truth, your truth. Everyone talks about, well, that's your truth, but this is my truth. A word about that, please. Well, it, it, there can be an understanding of truth that may be different. We may bring perspective to something, and consequently, I want to hear what that perspective is. And if that's what a person means when they say, your truth, my truth, I, I, I'm willing to listen. But if they say that, that we can maintain contradictions that are diametrically opposed, you hold the A and I hold the non-A, well, those can't both be true, and it violates logic. And consequently, then, we become dismissive of what the reality might be. And if I become dismissive of reality, I can't know truth. I, truth, truth is not reality. Truth is what I think about reality when I think accurately about it. So I need to do the best I can to try and understand the reality before me. What do you think? Uh, why is it? that some people have more of a true north, and even I'm not even talking about necessarily Christians, but why some people seem to have an ear for truth and others do not. Well, a lot of times we're emotionally invested in a point of view, so I may be able to function in a pursuit of truth in a thousand areas, no problem. But if I'm emotionally invested in something, I may compromise at that particular point. So I have to try to understand what's going on with this person. One of the informal fallacies is a sentimental appeal, or it's also called the ad misericordium or the miserable heart, where I'll compromise a truth because I have a friend. And so I'll say, oh, yeah, well, I know, I know there's, there may be moral reasons why abortion is wrong, but I have a friend who's had mm-hmm. one. Yes, I know. Right. I, I I know that there may be something about um, same-sex marriage, say, that is wrong, and it, viol- it violates actually uh, uh, the sweeping tradition of all of history up until this hour. And, but I and have so a friend. I have a friend. <laughs> yeah, and we'll uh, compromise Jerry, at that point. Uh, yeah, Jerry wrote my. Uh, uh, also, by the way, Jerry is. Uh, remember, he's written this book called quotable C.S. Lewis. He's the co-editor on that. And anything that Jerry writes is golden. So just uh, Google Jerry Root, Professor Jerry Root, and you can find, you'll find a wealth of information and resources that you can use. Uh, Jerry, thank you. I so appreciate your time. Now go forth and teach those students well, because we need them. Sandy Reels in the morning on AFR Talk. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.